As Pastor Joshua said, my name is uh, Mark Catlin. I am a member here at Midtown Baptist Church. I'm filling in for Pastor John. Uh, He's traveling, and he has graciously asked me to preach this morning. And so it is my honor to share God's word with you. Uh, If you have a copy of your word, uh, you can turn to Isaiah 48. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Before we read it together, I would like to set a little bit of context for you. Um, We have just finished a series in Galatians that John preached through. We have just finished a series in the Gospel of Mark that Joshua preached through. And so now we come into a random chapter in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 48. And so allow me to first read all 47 chapters that precede this. Isaiah 1.1. That's not a joke. I'm just kidding. It is. What has happened in Isaiah, before we get to Isaiah 48, um, I'm going to say some Assyrian king names. You can forget those, but don't forget their importance. Uh, The reason I'm going to say some Assyrian king names is Isaiah is a prophet of God, called by God, around uh, 740 B.C. He ministers into the 680s B.C., so he ministers maybe for 60 years of his life. When he begins... His ministry, Tiglath-Pileser III, there's an Assyrian king, is the Assyrian king. In Assyrian history, he is known as one of the greatest Assyrian kings, which really means that he is one of the most ruthless. He is the first to really build what we would call an ancient empire, as we would understand it today. And he did it through power, through might, through war, and through slavery. He turned this might, this power, this war, this slavery on the nation of Israel, God's people. He would make them Assyrian subjects, and he would begin the exile of God's people, the northern tribes, in 734. When Isaiah begins his ministry, Israel, none of it is in exile. By the end of his ministry, he will see all of Israel exiled except for the city of Jerusalem. It would all be at the hands of Assyrian kings. After Tiglath-Pileser III is off the throne, Shalmaneser V comes to the throne and he begins and continues the exiling of the northern tribes until Sargon II completes it around 722 B.C. Uh, What this means is that 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel have been exiled. Their land has been conquered and they are under Assyrian rule instead of being ruled under a Davidic king. There is one tribe that remains, the tribe of Judah. Well, here comes another Assyrian king, Sennacherib. Sennacherib takes the throne in around 705, and in 701 BC, he comes in Isaiah 36.1. It says that Sennacherib took all the fortified cities of Judah. If we look at Sennacherib's annals, his history, the way that he tells it, he took 46 fortified cities in the tribe of Judah, and he has surrounded Jerusalem. Again, if we were to look at Sennacherib's account of these things, he mentions Hezekiah in his account, and he says he has surrounded Hezekiah, the Israelite king at that time. He has surrounded him like a bird in a cage. There is nowhere for him to flee. And so at this point, all of Israel has been exiled except for the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem has nothing to defend it. Hezekiah has sent all the gold and silver out of the temple treasuries to try to buy off the Assyrian king so that he will not destroy Jerusalem. 
Sennacherib sends his messenger, the Rab Shaka, and he begins to uh, campaign for the fact that they should now owe their allegiance to the Assyrian king. After all, what has their God done for them? Look around you, Israel. Your God has not defended your land, and he will not defend your holy city. I know that God said his presence will be here forever. You might want to think again. You are surrounded. Hezekiah, with no army to defend, no more money to pay, turns to the only thing that he can, and in fact, it was the first thing he should have done. He turned to prayer. And when he prays, all of a sudden, the strength of the Lord is enacted, and the Lord destroys 185,000 Assyrian troops and delivers the city of Jerusalem. I believe that the chapters that we are going to read isn't, are in the aftermath of this prayer. That God has refined his people through the Assyrian army, trying to root out idolatry from them. Because the reason that Assyria has come is because they haven't trusted the Lord, but they have trusted in their own idols. And therefore, it's not the strength of the Lord that has failed, but it's the strength of their own arm. And the Lord is trying to remind them of who he is to call them back to him so that he can refine them in his image and display his glory through them. And so 40 to 46 in Isaiah is a constant call. Israel, rid yourself of your idols. They are your disease. But I can heal if you would just rid yourself of your idols. Isaiah 47 then reminds them, don't turn to Babylon, another great power at this time, because I am going to destroy them as well. In their pride, they have risen up against me, and they said, who is like us? The real question is, who is like me? And so I will show them that they will lay in the dust if they oppose me in their pride. So if you trust in their army, if you trust in their gods, your end will be their same end. And after this, after this refining of God, after this destruction of Babylon, which I think is at the hands of Sennacherib in 689 B.C., I'm sure a fact that you were wondering. The Lord turns to his people and says, listen to me. Israel has asked in Isaiah 40, chapter 27, given all this, and perhaps rightfully so if we think about it, Lord, why is our way hidden from you? Don't you see us? Do you not see that your land that you promised has been taken from us? Do you not see that your people are dying? Do you not see that your people are in exile? Why do you ignore our claim as your people? And he says, I see you. And I am refining you for my glory. So we turn to Isaiah 48. He says, I see you, and I want you to hear this. Everything that has happened, I have brought upon you for your good and for my glory. The big idea from this text is that God patiently refines his people for our good and his glory. God patiently refines his people for our good and for his glory. Let us stand for the reading of God's word, Isaiah 48, 1 through 11. 
Listen to this, house of Jacob, those who are called by the name Israel and have descended from Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and declare the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. For they are named after the holy city and they lean on the God of Israel. His name is the Lord of armies. I declared the past events long ago. They came out of my mouth. I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted and they occurred. Because I know that you are stubborn and your neck is iron and your forehead bronze, therefore I declared to you long ago, I announced it to you before it occurred. So you could not claim my idol caused them. My carved image and cast idol control them. You have heard it. Observe it all. Will you not acknowledge it? From now on, I will announce new things to you, hidden things that you have not known. They have been created now and not long ago. You have not heard of them before today, so you cannot claim I already knew them. You have never heard. You have never known. For a long time, your ears have not been open. For I knew that you were very treacherous and were known as a rebel from your birth. But I will delay my anger for the sake of my name. And I will restrain myself for your benefit and for my praise, so that you will not be destroyed. Look, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. I will act for my own sake, indeed my own, for how can I be defiled? I will not give my glory to another. You may be seated. As we work through this text, remember the big idea that God patiently refines his people for our good and for his glory. And what we see consistently throughout the text is the intertwining of Israel's rebellion and God's refining. Look at verses 1 to 2. Listen to this, house of Jacob, those who are called by the name Israel and have descended from Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and declare the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness, for they are named after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. You can see here that what, what God is doing is reminding them of the names by which they have been called and of their past in the forefathers. The house of Jacob. Those who are called by the name Israel, another name for Jacob, and have descended from Judah, the promised line back in Genesis, who swear by the name of the Lord and declare the God of Israel. He is reminding them of their past and the promises that come along with what it means to be Israel, that he will bless them, and that they will be a blessing to the nations. They declare the God of Israel, but they don't do it in truth or righteousness. They claim the name of the holy city, and they claim to lean on the God of Israel, but none of these things are true. They like taking the name of the Lord, but they don't want the refining fire that comes with it. They want his blessing, but they don't want his burning fire. They want his promises, but they don't want to be purified. This has been the case at least from the beginning of the book of Isaiah. We can look back at Isaiah 1, and it opens up, and you know something is wrong from the very beginning. I told you I wouldn't read all the chapters. I'm going to read a little bit of Isaiah 1. Uh, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. Verse 2, listen, 
heavens and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. Before you get to anything else, if you are aware of God's word and his covenant that he made back in the Torah and the Pentateuch and the first five books of the Bible, you know that once he says, listen, O heavens, and pay attention, O earth, Israel is in trouble. The reason that is the case is if we know Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 31, then we remember the fact that God called them into covenant. And then he said, if you go into idolatry, guess what I'm going to do? I will call heaven and earth as witnesses against you. And so if they were in tune with God's law, I think that they knew it, but they didn't know it in their heart. They didn't follow it in their heart. They would have known that the moment that God calls heaven and earth to listen to what he's about to say, they are about to bear witness to their sin, their idolatry, and the promise of exile that comes along with it. Even if that's not the case, let's say I'm wrong about Deuteronomy, it turns bad really quickly. I have raised children and brought them up but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. O sinful nation, verse four of Isaiah one, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. Later we see In verse 7, your land is desolate, your cities burned down, foreigners devour your fields right in front of you, a desolation like a place demolished by foreigners, daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. But if the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, We we would resemble Gomorrah. Why is this the situation for the people of God? Is it because God lacks love for them? Is it because he doesn't have the power to defend his people? No, it is because he is purifying them of their sin. Verse 17, into verse 16, we see what they need to stop doing. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. What they were doing is they took on the name of the Lord, but they didn't take on his character. When we look back and we see the character of our God, who is he? He is the one who breaks the fangs of the oppressor in Job 29. He is the one who defends the rights of the fatherless and provides for the widow because he loves them. He will provide the poor with food and with clothing. And yet they had taken on his name, but they didn't display his character. Back in Isaiah 48, it says, they declare the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. Isaiah 29, 13 puts it this way. The Lord said, these people approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service. Yet their hearts are far from me. And human rules direct their worship of me. Because of this, God will tell the people of Israel, I don't want your worship. I would rather you shut the doors than to come in with this injustice and claim my name and then leave and not represent my character. These are the people that God is talking to. And I wonder if we need to think about the same. We gather as the people of God. We claim his name. And yet when we walk out, do we represent his character when we leave? If not, 
then God is coming in his justice against his people and his purifying fire will refine us. You invited this purifying fire. I don't know if you remember, but the first song that we sang, which is quickly becoming both my favorite song and my least favorite song. Do you really want God to be sweeter than the lure of sin? Do you really want him to be your only joy? Do you want to relinquish the whole of yourself to his holy employ? Your lust, your fury, and your pride, every rebellious whim, deserve no right to hide. Do you devote them to their end, which is destruction? Refiner, all-consuming fire, burn away what's earthly in me and have your way. Refiner, come and purify the longings of my heart and captivate me by your grace. If we are worshiping the same God as the God of Israel, which we are now revealed in Jesus Christ, then you are inviting something like the Assyrian army to come and purify you. Why? Is it because God doesn't care about you? No, it's because he loves you enough to not leave you in your sin. But rather, he will discipline you for your sins so that you are not destroyed by them. We have invited the purifying fire of God. I want to say this quickly, that Israel's main problem was not that they sinned. Okay? You're going to walk out of here with the presence of God, having come into the presence of God with the people in his worship, and you're going to leave and be like, yeah, refining fire. Now I'm going to live a holy life. And within about 10 minutes, you're going to have a sinful thought. I'm like, well, maybe destruction's coming for me. I don't think so, because Israel's main problem was not that they sinned, was not even that they had idols. The main problem with Israel is that when they were confronted about their sin and their idolatry, they refused to give up their idols. They refused to allow the refining fire to consume their sin, and so now they are being consumed by him. So when you hear this word of the refining fire of God that purifies the hearts of his people, if idols are exposed, if sin is coming to mind, the worst thing that you could do is run from that conviction. Because although you may feel shame in Christ, believer, the Lord longs for you to, to look him in the eye so that he can remind you, you are his child. Your sonship, your daughtership, your place in the people of God is not nullified because of your sin. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is nothing you can do to undo that. And so as you feel the conviction of the purifying fire of God, I pray that you would come to him, confess your sin, and repent. This is why I think each week, what do we do as part of our service? We have a prayer of confession that the refining fire might work to purify us of our sin rather than the all-consuming fire destroying our very selves. The people of Israel were rebellious. They took on the name of God but didn't display his character. Now we move on to verses 3 through, we'll go to the 5. Said, I declared the past events long ago. They came out of my mouth. I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted and they occurred. Because I know that you are stubborn and your neck is iron and your forehead bronze, therefore I declared to you long ago. I announced it to you before it occurred. So you could not claim my idol caused them. 
my carved image and cast idol control them. We see this interplay throughout the book of Isaiah of the former things and new things that are to come. We'll get to the new things here in a second. There's a large conversation about what are these former things. Are they the former redemptive things of God? Something like the Exodus, where God in his mighty power displayed that he was greater than Pharaoh. He delivered his people out of slavery, brought them through the waters, and gave him his law on Mount Sinai, and eventually brought them to the promised land. Is, is, are these the former things? Or are the former things God's judgment? that he has brought on his people, as we said, throughout the book of Isaiah. And they're looked to the former things, and God is saying, I brought about that judgment so that you couldn't say your idol is in control of these events so that you might manipulate your idol for redemption without being refined. I think it's probably a both and, but I think the emphasis is on the judgment of God. That throughout Isaiah, what he has been saying is it's not just that Assyria has come, but he is constantly telling his people, hey, I am bringing Assyria in judgment against your sin. And they're like, okay, we don't want that. Well, then don't be idolaters. Well, we want to be idolaters, but don't bring the judgment. Well, I'm bringing Assyria. And this flow of tiglath the third, of Sargon, of Shalmaneser V, and Sargon II is God's patient refining of them. And he's reminding them, this judgment I brought. Your idol didn't cause it to happen, didn't call it forth, and your idol didn't predict it. I did. I am the one in control of history. And what's interesting about this is he says, here's why I predicted it. Here's not only why I brought it, but I said it would happen before it was going to. Why? So that you could not claim my idol caused them. My carved image and my cast idol control them. Something really interesting about this, it seems that the people want to be idolaters. There is a temptation to idolatry, and there's a question that we have to answer. Why is idolatry so tempting? Why do they want to be idolaters? Why do they want their carved image to control history instead of their God? I mean, Isaiah goes to great lengths in Isaiah 40 to 46. If you just read that text later this afternoon, you will see a lot of mocking of idolatry. Isaiah goes to great lengths to remind them that these gods that, that you worship, that you bow down to, that you want to save you, they are made by your hands. They are mere wood and stone and gold and silver. And so when you look to them to save you, they're looking to their creator to save them. That's you. So good luck when the Assyrian army comes because you know what Sennacherib has done? He's thrown all those into a fire and they will be consumed. What's going to happen to you if you lean on them? The same thing that happened to them. They cannot save. Isaiah even plays out a scenario in which a person makes an idol. And the way that you make an idol is you take a little bit of wood and you overlay it with gold to pretend that it has some sort of glory. So when the sun shines on it, it's bright and you're like, oh, look at the glory of God. And you might bedazzle it with some jewels. Right? And Isaiah goes through this process, and when you read ancient Near Eastern texts, they know that they make their gods. But they don't care. Why? Israel doesn't care that their gods are made by human hands, that they've made. They want to claim that they're in control of history. Why would that be the case? I would like to suggest to you that it sounds silly to us, but it might not be as silly as we think. That we are just as prone to idolatry as they were if we could only answer the question, 
Why were they so prone to idolatry? In this text, it says, so that you cannot claim my idol caused them. In the background, maybe of all of chapter 48 is Exodus 32 to 34. And I think in particular, this calls to mind this, this particular episode. In Exodus 32, God has brought his people out, out of slavery in Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. He's given them the law. But he's called Moses to be in his presence. I want to read these verses to you, and I want, to, I want you to see not only that they make gods for themselves, but I want you to see why. Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, come make gods for us who will go before us. Because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron replied to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Did you catch why? Did you catch why they wanted to make idols that represented God in their presence? Moses had gone up on the mountain. He had already been hearing from the Lord, and he would come back down and tell the people what he heard. And so there was this mediator between God and the people, and it was a man created in the image of God, called to at a prophet, Moses. But he had gone up in the mountain, and he was there for a little too long. The people got impatient, and here's what they feared. They feared that God's presence had left them, that God had abandoned them. What they needed was they needed something that they could see, something that they could touch, something that they could talk to, something that they believed could hear their prayers, could see their situation. They needed something to hold on to say, God is with us. If you notice, he says, so that God will go before us. It's something that they would literally be able to carry in front of them and say, look, there's our God. We know that he is with us. You remember that this is the question that Israel is asking in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27. Why is your way hidden from us? We can ensure that you see us if we make this idol and just claim that it's you. If we claim that this idol has controlled history, then we know that God has not abandoned us. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you felt like God has not been with you? And look to cling for anything, to know, to be sure, to taste, and to see that God is with you. A symbol of his presence. I can tell you that I have. And the reason that I've been there is God was refining me, but I didn't see it. And I had built these symbols of my life, around my life, that gave me the promise of God's presence. I wonder if I asked you, how do you know that God is with you? What would you say? And how you answer that question will reveal the idols that you're making. For example, if you were to ask me, how do you know that God is with you? I might say, look at my life. 
I have a beautiful wife and four kids. I have a good job. I have a nice house. I lack for nothing. And all of that is by God's grace. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? These are all good gifts from God. But none of them, none of those things mean that God is with me. Does that mean that God is not with the single person? Does it mean that God is not with the married couple who has a barren womb? Does it mean that God is not with the poor who don't have a home? Can't be. Because the scriptures speak directly against that. Or perhaps you're in a different situation. You are single and you think, if God would just give me what I lack in a spouse, then I would be satisfied. If God would just give me the home on this street, then I would be satisfied. If God would just give me the job that I want and the money that I desire, a salary number that I want, then I would be satisfied. None of those are the symbol of God's presence. They might be blessings that he brings, but it doesn't mean that he is with you. And so the question becomes, what is the symbol of his presence? First, uh, I had a sweet job. I lived in an amazing place. And it all got taken from me. And the question that I asked was, why? Have I not been faithful to you, God? In the midst of that, I, we didn't have an income. We didn't have health insurance. We got pregnant again. Yes, we know how it happens. We got pregnant again. We didn't know how we would make it. We didn't know how we would provide for our children. I didn't know how to provide for my wife. I didn't know how to lead my family. Not only that, but we didn't have a place to stay, and my wife goes into labor five weeks early. We were staying at a friend's house, and at midnight as we drive to the hospital, in silence, inside I'm asking, God, where are you at? My wife turns to me and she says, can you just tell me that God loves us? Does he still love us? I looked at my wife, perhaps with a mustard seed of faith, perhaps not believing the words were true. I said he does. was God doing in that moment? He was refining us. And the fact that God is with us is not that that child ended up being okay in birth, even though we found out after the birth that both he and my wife should have died. There was a condition that they did not find and they did not know about until afterward, and it is a miracle that they are alive. That is a blessing from God, but that's not the promise of his presence. The symbol of his presence is that in the midst of any circumstance, your faith is working itself through love. That's it. Why do I say that? We just got done, I mentioned, in a series in Galatians. And let me remind you of what Galatians says, if I can find it. It's the New Testament. It's a strange place. Galatians 5 says this. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. Later on, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the question isn't, if you, if you answer the question, how do you know that God loves me, and you point to your life, you're doing nothing more than say, look at the life that I have built for myself. This is how I know that God loves me. This is the story that I have, and look at the symbols of God's presence that I have made. They may be good gifts, but they are not the guarantee of his presence. The guarantee of his presence is that through any circumstance, whether single or married, kids or not, job or not, house or not, food or not, you still have faith that is working itself out in love. The way I think this ends up expressing itself in Galatians 5, if you want to know that God's presence is with you by his spirit working in you, then you ought to look for the fruit of the spirit. For the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In other words, if you want to see the sign of God's presence in you, it is in the midst of a hateful world, God is working in you love. In the midst of a world full of sadness and complaining and despair, you have joy. In the midst of a world that is surrounded by chaos, you have peace. In the midst of a quick-paced world, God is working in you patience. In the midst of hatred, God is working in you kindness by his spirit. In the midst of this evil age, he is working goodness in you. In the midst of a world of broken promises, he is working out faithfulness in you. In the midst of a world that thrives on power and oppression, you are being worked out in gentleness and in a world that says you can be anything that you want. The spirit is working out in you self-control. If you want to know if God's presence is at work in you, if any of these things are being manifested in your life despite your circumstances and good gifts, then this is how you know. Because the refining fire of God is ridding you of sin and producing his character in you. So the Lord speaks to his people because he knows that they are stubborn. He knows that we want symbols of his presence that he doesn't promise. He knows that we have foreheads of bronze, necks that don't turn when he tried to direct us. They are iron sinews that don't want to turn. And so he tells us beforehand what he's going to do. He has told us that he is coming in judgment against those who do not believe in Christ and he is coming to save those and raise them from the dead and bring them to a new creation who do. What is your response this morning? To stiffen your neck or to submit to the refining fire of God? He continues in verse six. There we see God's rebellion and yet God's patient refining of his people. He says, you have heard it, observe it all in verse six. Will you not acknowledge it? From now on, I will announce new things to you, hidden things that you have not known. They have been created now and not long ago. You have not heard of them before today, so you could not claim I already knew them. You have never heard, you have never known for a long time. Your ears have not been opened. For I knew that you were very treacherous and were known as a rebel from birth. Here we see again God's, or God's people in their rebellion, real in their rebellion, but God's patient refining. I mentioned earlier, Isaiah's been in this ministry for 50 years probably. At least 50 years. God told them what he was going to do and he did it. And then they still attributed everything to their idols. 
And instead of saying, I'm done with you, he says, okay, I'll announce new things to you. I'll tell you them before they happen. And these new things, whenever we see former things and new things in Isaiah, the contrast is always at least God's judgment in the past compared with his redemption that's coming in the future. And what he's telling them now, he has not mentioned before. And I will pick up on this in this last two verses as we look at it here in a second. But the new thing that he is about to proclaim in Isaiah 49, in Isaiah 50, and in Isaiah 52 and 53 is that he is going to take care of their sin. And he is going to do it through the servant of God. That there is one who is coming. He called his people to be a servant. He called his people to represent his character, and they do not. And so how is he going to work redemption in them? He is going to send a servant to the servant. He's going to send a servant who does reflect his character and can take on their sin in order to redeem them. As he refuses to abandon his people, he refuses to destroy them, but rather he desires to refine them into his image. And so up until this point, they have heard that there is a Davidic king who's coming who will reign in righteousness, but they have not heard how he's going to get there. We'll pick that up in a second. Verses 9 through 11, he says, I will delay my anger for the sake of my name, and I will restrain myself for your benefit and for my praise, so that you will not be destroyed. Look, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. I will act for my own sake, indeed my own, for how can I be defiled? I will not give my glory to another. Incredibly, After 50 years of God speaking a direct word to his people and them rejecting that word, and he refines them for 50 years, he is now at a moment where basically nothing is left. Only the city of Jerusalem remains. And he's talking to them, and he's saying, will you now turn to me? And they are saying, no. So God can either now completely wipe out his people, or he can relent from his anger so that he can refine them. I will delay my anger for the sake of my name. We're called back again to Exodus 32 and 34 where God's people are idolatrous. They make idols to represent God and say, these are your gods. They are the ones who will go before us. They have delivered us and they will fulfill what God has promised, but he can't. They will fulfill. Moses comes down from the mountain. He finds them in their idolatry. He is angry with them and he goes back to God and he pleads for the people on their behalf. On, on their behalf. What Moses says is he says, Lord, if you will just take me, kill me, redeem your people. And God says, no, I'm not going to take you. I will refine them. I will bring judgment on a few, but I will not kill you. I will defer my anger because you're not the one to take my wrath on behalf of my people. And instead, he reveals his name. You'll notice here that in Isaiah 48, this is all about the name of the Lord. And he reveals his name to Moses. Moses asked to see his glory. And here's what God does. Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord came down in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed his name, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of Israel. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, 
and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. This is the name that God is revealing here in Isaiah 48 and throughout the book of Isaiah, that his patience is there. He is slow to anger. He is compassionate and gracious. He is abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. His holiness requires it. His holiness, as Joshua mentioned earlier, means that we are to conform to his holiness. He must purify his people. But his holiness also means that he can't be in the presence of sin without destroying it. This creates a problem. If God is going to, God's presence is going to be with his people, how can it be with his people when they are full of sin without destroying them? His anger must destroy sin. His holiness requires it. But here he says he will delay his anger for the sake of his name. He will restrain himself for our benefit and for his praise so that we will not be destroyed. He says, I have refined you but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. I will act for my own sake, indeed my own. For how can I be defiled and will not give my glory to another? If God were to wipe out his people, he would give his glory to other idols because he would be saying, I am just like the other gods. His holiness not only requires that he destroys sin in us, but his holiness means that he is separate from the gods of the nations. That he can deliver his people. Here's the argument in Isaiah for why man-made idols are not really gods. Uh, they don't see. They don't hear. They don't smell. They can't move. So they can't hear your prayer. They can't so see your situation. They don't smell the pleasing aroma of your sacrifices. And if they can't move, then they can't carry you from danger and to salvation. You know what the problem is? They're deaf, dumb, and blind, but so are God's people. Isaiah 42, he calls his people his servant, but then he turns around and he says, who is blind and who is deaf but my servant, Israel? So there's a servant that has to come to a servant to open their eyes and to open their ears, to open their ears to hear God's word, to see the beauty of his holiness, that they might be like him. But right now, his people still stand deaf, dumb, and blind. If his people remain that way and he destroys them in that, he is making the argument that he is not God. If the argument applies to other gods, that their idols are deaf, dumb, and blind, and therefore they are not gods at all, then if his people remain like that and they are destroyed, then he is not God either. But he will not give up his glory. He will not let his name be defiled and he will not let his people be destroyed. And we can see this in this phrase in verse 9. It says, I will delay his anger. Then in verse 10, sorry. Look, I have refined you, but not as silver. This is a really interesting phrase that I've spent several years trying to understand. Let me give you a few ideas of what it could be and then what I think is happening. I don't get tattoos, uh, mainly because I'm afraid of needles. But if I were to get something tattooed somewhere on my body, I would do the cool thing and get like Hebrew script, you know, like on my forearms. Like when I reach out to get the coffee at Starbucks, we'd be like, oh, what is that? Sort of. But I would get this phrase tattooed if I were that sort of person who wasn't afraid of needles. Not like silver. 
Some think that what this means is that for the people of Israel, God has refined them, but he hasn't refined them as silver because when you refine silver, you take away the dross and the impurities and only the silver remains. But for Israel, God hasn't done that yet. The impurities remain. Maybe that's true. Another way to take this and the way that I took it for a long time is that really what this means is that God has been gracious not to completely destroy them. Because silver throughout the book of Isaiah represents wealth and it represents idolatry. And so the fact that he has not refined them as silver means that he has not completely destroyed them. He will destroy the wealth of those who think they are wise in their pride and their rebellion against God. And he will destroy their idols. But he has not destroyed his people. He has refined them, but not like that. And really what this points to is really the, the great danger of idolatry is not only that we control God and we manipulate him and we make symbols of his presence rather than who he actually is and his character being worked out in us being a sign of his presence. Not only that, but we reject the fact that we were created in the image of God to be like him. We have abdicated our role as his representatives and given it to a lifeless being. And when we worship it, we become like it. This is why they have foreheads of bronze and iron sinews in their neck is they have become what they worship. But God has not refined them like that because he will not destroy them. This too is possible. Maybe it's all three of these things, but I think the emphasis is on what I'm about to say. When he says, look, I have refined you, but not as silver, this Hebrew phrase could very easily be translated, not with silver. And I think that we ought to think of it like this. In addition to these other ways, we're dealing with Hebrew poetry, which has layers of meaning to it. And the reason that I think that we should think this way is because the same Hebrew phrase is found in Isaiah 55. And if we turn there, I think we find a truth that we must cling to in this text. Isaiah 55, verse 1 says, Come, everyone who is thirsty, Come to, the father, come to the water, and you without silver. This is the same phrase in Hebrew that says, but not as silver. Not with silver. Without silver. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk. Without silver and without cost. No silver and without cost. Why do you spend your silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithful kindnesses of David since I have made him a witness to the people, a leader and commanders for the people so you will summon a nation you do not know and nations who do not know you will run to you for the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel has glorified you. Now here's the question. What I am saying is that the Lord is not gonna refine his people with silver. What that means is he is not going to use your wealth or your idols as a means of your redemption. They are not going to be your savior. And this is good news. Because as Israel looks to their idols and their wealth to save them, the Lord says, that's not how I'm going to redeem you. But there is a problem. He has delayed his anger. 
And his holiness requires, his justice requires that they pay for their sin. His holiness requires that he be in the midst of his people to purify them but not destroy them. So how in the world is he going to be in their midst but not destroy them? How is he going to refine them? How can they enter into the promised land of Isaiah 55 without cost? And the answer is the servant of Israel, the new thing that God is declaring to them. Look at Isaiah, between Isaiah 48 and Isaiah 55 comes Isaiah 52 and 53. And if you listen to any sermon Pastor Joshua preached on the Gospel of Mark, you heard this text. Why? Because the Gospel of Mark, the author of Mark, is convinced that this servant comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to this in Isaiah 52 and 53. No, let's not listen to that yet. Look at what happens in Isaiah 52. You might recall, you might recall that in Isaiah 6, one of the most famous texts in the Old Testament, sorry, I have to do this first, one of the most famous texts in the Old Testament, the Lord says, who shall we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says this phrase, here am I, send me. And Southern Baptist Missions was born. We've seen that Isaiah's ministry, as God predicted in Isaiah 6, that he spoke consistently for maybe 60 years to a people who heard but did not understand, who saw the acts of God but did not perceive what he was doing. But now here in Isaiah 52, the Lord sends someone, but it's none other than himself. Isaiah 52, 6 says this, Therefore my people will know my name. Therefore they will know on that day that I am he who says, Here I am. Rather than sending another one other than himself in order to redeem his people and refine them, he promises that he is going to show up and that he is going to refine his people. And how is he going to show up? Is he going to show up in glory? Is he going to show up in power? Is he going to be like Tiglath-Pileser III and Shalmaneser V and Sargon II and the false kings of Israel that did it through might and war and oppression? Isaiah 52, 13 says, See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. And here's this phrase. This phrase is only used of God himself in Isaiah apart from this verse. What he is saying is my servant who is highly exalted is on the throne with God, is God himself. And so what do we expect that God is going to look like when he comes to redeem his people? Do we expect him to be like the earthly kings? Verse 14 is an astonishing juxtaposition with one who is lifted up and greatly exalted. It's an astonishing description of God himself showing up on the human stage. Just as many were appalled at you. God shows up and they are appalled at his appearance. His appearance was so disfigured that he didn't even look like a man. And his form did not resemble a human being. So will he sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they will see what had not been told them. And they will understand what they had not heard. 
Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should even look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. This is God himself showing up on the human stage. Why? He is taking on the shame of his people in his person as Jesus Christ. And here we see the cost of our sin because yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains but we in turn regarded him stricken struck down by God and afflicted but he was pierced because of our rebellion crushed because of our iniquities punishment for our peace was upon him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. And out of the mouth of babes will come praise. He was taken away because of oppression. That's for the baby crying. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And he who considered his fate, for he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. But he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence. He had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Do you see what's happening here? The Lord has to pay for his people's sin. There has to be payment for it, and he wants to be in their presence. How does he satisfy both his justice and his presence with his people, his holiness to be separate and destroy sin, but his holiness to make his people like him? He pays the penalty himself. This is what the common, united witness is of the New Testament. Every single gospel connects Jesus' story back to the Old Testament and runs it through Isaiah 52 and 53 to say, God has come. He has paid the penalty for your sin and he has paid your entrance into the kingdom of God. Therefore, Isaiah 55 can be written, come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water and you without silver, without your wealth, without your idols. It doesn't matter if you are wealthy there's not enough money in the world to purchase your entrance into the kingdom of God. You can get into Disney, but you can't get into the kingdom. Come buy and eat with nothing. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver, people of God, on what does not satisfy? The reason we can gather in God's presence can be with his people is not because of your status in the world. It's not because of your job. It's not because of the clothes you wear. It's not because of the person that you married. It's not because of how awesome your kids are. It's not because of who your parents are. It's not because of the idols that you've made for yourself. The reason you can come into God's presence this morning and not be destroyed by the all-consuming fire is because Jesus has paid the price for your sin.
And as we come into his presence, we come based on the blood of Christ. And so he invites us, come, everyone who is thirsty. And what happens is, in the New Testament, Jesus not only dies for our sin to take our punishment, he raises from the dead in order to overcome the power of sin and death. He now ascends and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he sends us the Holy Spirit. That now we are being conformed to the image of Christ. That when he looks at his people, we can see the fruit of the Spirit being born out in our lives. And he looks at our lives because of his work on the cross and his work in us in the Spirit. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. The text in Peter talks about fiery trials. The text in Isaiah talks about God's refining fire even through the Assyrian army. He loves you too much to leave you in your sin. And so he disciplines for your, you for your sin so that you won't be destroyed by them. And the promise that we have, that despite our rebellion, God refines us for our good and for his glory, is he has not only given us Christ, he has given us his spirit, and he will hold us fast to the end. That it is not our wealth, it is not anything that we have, it is not our charisma, it is not our personality, it is not our idols that we have made. But that which holds us fast in God's presence is God himself. And when we get to the new creation, in Revelation 21 and 22, there will be no more pain, no sorrow, no grief, no more death. All the things that cause you to question God's presence in your life. His love for you will be done away with. Why? Because sin itself will be done away with and the enemy will be destroyed. God's refining fire will refine you, refine your sin and bring you into his presence, pure, perfect, and holy. But he will destroy the enemy. So I wonder this morning, in what have you put your trust what is it that when you ask the question, what is God's, the sign of God's presence in my life, what would you say it is? What is God looking to refine in your life? And I ask that you look to the Lord who has paid the price for your sin and repent and confess so that he can refine you this morning because he longs to do that for his people. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that you are the refining fire. We confess that at times we resist your refining fire, that we have shame because of our sin. But we also see that you have paid the price for our sin, that you long to look us in, in the eye and call us your children. And so, Father, we ask that we would come to you now in confession and repentance, that you might refine us into your image. The truth is we long to have our pet sins more than we long to be conformed to the image of Christ. So we ask that you would root out that desire in us. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work in us, that we would see your presence in us, not because of the external things that we have, but because of the fruit of Spirit being born out in us. We pray that we would not be like the people of Israel, but that when you confront us with our sin and our idolatry, that we would see that, that we would turn from it, and that we would run after you. Father, in short, we ask that you would be at work in and through us. 
We ask that your name would be glorified in it and that you would work for our good. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who has purchased our salvation, paid for our sin, and has made a way into your presence. We ask this in his name. Amen.